Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you that you have provided for us a place to come and study your word and to discuss the beauty of the gospel, the excellencies of Christ, and our need of him every day. Um, we thank you that um, our heart's longing is satisfied in who Jesus is and what he's done. And so we pray that we have thankful lives, lives that express our thankfulness through obedience to your word and through an excited, um, not dour, but excited presentation of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that that the study of this passage this morning adds to that in our understanding of it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, last week, we, uh, we talked about, we were in Genesis 3, for those of you who are, have your Bibles, um, which is all of you because you're all awesome. You have your phone right now. Okay. So, um, last week we were in Genesis 3. Uh, we talked about what, what were the factors, what leads us to, what is tempting to us about sin. What are the stages of that? And, and we talked about the lust of the eyes, lust of flesh, the pride of life, and all of that involved in Eve's deception and eating the apple, uh, and then Adam's blatant, just full-on embracing the apple and, and violating uh, the command of God. The stage has been set, as it always is whenever we sin, for communion with God. How's that going to look now? He's coming. He always did. The cool of the morning. And now Adam and Eve are going to face God for the first time, having tried to stage a coup to his rule over them. So the magnitude of humanity's fall is highlighted by this next conversation that we see in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, we're going to start in verse 8. And let's read through it. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. The sweat of, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And we'll stop there. So, I went ahead and read the whole thing, because I want to hear your impressions here. What does this tell us about God? Just initial impressions. What does this tell us about God? He values what he said very, very much. Okay. He doesn't just throw away words, right? His voice is important. His words are important. What else? Everybody got punished. Everybody got punished. Okay. It's not like, uh, oh, it's all eventually this person's fault. No, you all screwed up. Right. So there's recognition of blame, mm -hmm. and judgment is meted out to Accor fit... According to that blame. According to the blame. Okay. So we say those are right judgments, fair judgments, God's pretty much standard judgment, so we're good with that. Okay. He, he didn't take away the role that he had given him originally. Ah, uh, Okay. He stayed within the boundary, the boundaries that he had set. In okay. He kept the woman in the household, bearing children, right, and, and rearing them into their adult lives. And then he kept the man in the field working, uh, providing. And then yeah. he kept the serpent on the ground. He he stayed within the things that he had originally set because they were still his will, uh, but they had just increased the difficulty of them because they had brought the sin. The consequences were different. The, the circumstances for fulfilling the mandate and the roles are different, right? But the roles are the same. Okay, what does this tell us just generally, first impressions, about how we naturally deal with our sin? We don't want to own it. <laughs> was it? We don't want to own it. We don't want to own it. The first thing that Adam said was, it was her fault, and the first thing she said was, it was its fault. Right, right. Okay, so we, so we all want to, we want to blame others. It's a it's a blame game, right? Immediately, we want to blame others. What do they do? What what caused them to fear? Well, they hid. Why? Why does it say they hid? They were naked. 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 There's that. There's a recognition of I'm naked. Not only am I naked, but I'm naked before the one coming to visit, right? Why did it? Why does it say they fled? Because they what? They heard the sound of you in the garden. They heard the sound of him. What does that mean? Does God have particularly loud footsteps? What are they talking about? What's the sound proceeding from God? The law. What is he doing? What is he? Where are you? Isn't that what the first thing says? Where are you? <coughs> the voice of God causes them to tremble and hide. Right. It's his voice. It's the authority that he's bringing. It's the clear <coughs> standard that he's bringing. And they know that they have nothing to hide from that standard. The voice. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the, from the presence of the Lord among the trees. The cool of the day. It's, that's a unique statement in this passage. And it literally means in the wind of the day. Some say it refers to sundown, others in the afternoon, others 
kind of refer to the method by which God's voice is traveling through the garden. There's a spirit-wind kind of dichotomy or, or uh, analogy there. Either way, his presence is in the garden. So how do Adam and Eve respond to the presence of God in the garden? What do they do? They hide. What should they have done? What is he calling them to do? Come to him. So our natural response to our sin is hide. We run from him. Right? But what is he doing? You better run. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying, where are you? I haven't left you. You've left me. Right? I'm here. Come. Now, is that the way that a, a, somebody who's looking to thump you responds whenever you have violated their law? Come to me? No. I think that speaks to the nature of sin. And okay. The rift that it causes in relationships. Okay. Our relationship with Christ or our relationship with others. When you sin, it creates a, a I hear the voice, and the voice doesn't sound the way the voice sounded yesterday. The voice is now one of, he's coming to kill me, because he said, I'll surely die. He's, and th and that's, that one, there's fear to the voice of God. Two, it's an, it's an altered reality of the nature of who God is, right? I mean, it, it's a, what had he done for them? Everything. Everything. And yet, immediately their response is, he's not for my good. Right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a misunderstanding. It's a twisting of the nature of God. They're buying into the serpent's life, who God is. They're still buying it. Even though they see the results immediately of the fall. They're still saying, well, maybe there's some truth in what the serpent said. He's, he's, God's not good. They hide themselves. Instead of running to God, they run from Him. It's a posture of fear rather than fellowship. Their hiding reflects their guilt. Not only are they alienated from one another, which we'll see when they start the blame game, they're alienated from God. So God begins to ask the questions. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? So who does He direct the question to? Real, just The man. The man. Why? He's the keeper of the garden. He was the one who originally heard the commands of God. He's the one that was given authority over his house, over the garden, the dominion over the earth. He heard the command directly. Um, why is all-knowing, omnipotent God asking, where are you? Is there, are they encased in lead and you can't see through it like Superman? Is it? Why is God asking? Where, what is, that, is he really looking for location here? What is he asking? He wants the invitation. What's that? Invitation. Like he's, he's prompting them to come out and talk. Okay. Much like a father does his child when he knows. Yeah. You see the feet under the curtain, you know where they are. Where are you? <laughs> right, right. He wants the surrender. He wants, where's the heart? He's drawing out what the heart is with the question. God can see them. 
He's giving Adam an opportunity to come out of hiding and admit what he's done. He's calling him to repent, to acknowledge his sin and take responsibility. I didn't leave you, you left me. And that's, that's the whole implication of this. So Adam does step out. He doesn't say, I'm here. He knows what God's asking. He's asking the heart issue. Why are you hiding? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What does Adam point to as the cause of his fear? Again, it's the voice of God, literally your voice. Notice that he doesn't point to his sin. I sinned and hid from you because I recognize my guilt. He didn't do that. No, it was your voice that caused me to fear. Again, it's the, it's not me, it's you, you know, kind of thing. Well, Kevin, couldn't you also say that maybe he doesn't even understand what, is, what exactly is going on? I mean, sin blinds us so much that Adam may actually believe this, even though it's not right. He may actually believe the lie that it wasn't his fault or... Maybe. Maybe. I, I'm less inclined to go that route just because, I mean, two seconds ago, he, he was a pretty smart guy, you know? <laughs> So I don't, I don't know that I, I would go that route. I think he understands it. I think he's looking to deflect. I think the, the heart response is deflection. Um, and, and that alienation that, that he's experiencing with God, he may not fully understand it. Yeah, he's about to. Um, is, is such a stark contrast with chapter 2, that whole situation. The voice of God that spoke, to, to, spoke Adam into existence that provided all that he needed is now the source of great fear. So what's the second question God asks in verse 11? Who told you you're naked? Why is that a question? <laughs> well, <laughs> Why? What's he really asking? I mean, some of these questions on the surface are like, well, that's, kind of, that's kind of a Captain Obvious question. But, but what is he talking about? He's been naked. Right? He's been naked. How do you know? How do you know? What, kind, what is it about your nakedness that now makes you afraid of me? That underlying question of why do you think that's a bad thing? Why is this not? Yeah. Why are you feeling vulnerable by this? Remember we talked about last week. The sin that they experienced, that they just had to have, now made them ashamed, guilty, and vulnerable. There's a sense of abandoned. I'm alone in the world now. I'm vulnerable. Well, who told you that? Who told you that you were vulnerable? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? How is the language different here that God uses as opposed to the language of the serpent. Didn't the serpent say, did God actually say? Right? What's what the word God uses? I commanded. I commanded you. That's a little different, isn't it? Give some insight into the way the serpent kind of uses, well, he says this, but all commands are you know, equally valid, so it's just a, what's your truth, you know, whatever. He commanded it. There's one command from one God. It's not a suggestion. Notice also that God is not surprised here. That second question he says, have you eaten from the tree? That's rhetorical. That's a, it's a rhetorical of, you know, I know what's going on here. I'm not, I'm not surprised by this. So look at verse 
12, the second answer here. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Who is doing the acting in this confession? He's confessing, but who's doing all the action? God and the woman. And apparently the apple is involved. You know, he's, it's the apple's fault. God and the woman. But even, even the way that he phrases it, it's not even the woman. It's the woman you gave me. What, are we, what is he going to? It's God, this is your fault. God, it's your fault. How could a good, all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful God have given me this woman you knew would deceive me? It's the problem of evil. He starts with the problem of evil. That great, C.S. Lewis calls the great Achilles heel of Christianity. Well, whatever. Does God answer the problem of evil here? Does he say, well, my thought process was this. Whenever I created the woman, I... No. Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? And you're not in a position to question me right now, naked one. Right? It's the problem of evil. Either God is not all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, or he wouldn't have let this happen. He wouldn't have created Eve. Notice that God doesn't even bother to answer the question anymore than he bothers to answer it later with Job. And answer with Job. We got 40 chapters of why. And God goes, Did you create whatever? So God hears this, and he moves on to the next. The next subject. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, Who, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The, the literal language there, the, well, I say the, literal, the, the implication of the language there, God says to the woman, What in the world have you done? is basically what he's saying to her. What, what, what's going on here? What have you done? Is Eve any better than Adam at confessing and taking responsibility? Serpent. Serpent you made. <laughs> That's exactly right. The serpent you made. At least she told, I mean, our truth. It's like, yeah, the serpent did deceive her, and she didn't eat because of it. Yeah. But Adam was like, you, you gave this to me. In the Hebrew, the serpent is the first word in the sentence. So it's like immediately. So we got this, hello, hello, hello. You got anything going on here all the way down the line. But, Adam still sins worse because he tries to blame God for all of this, and uh, Eve blames the serpent. Well, except that God made the serpent. So, I mean, it's a little bit more subtle. Maybe she's more deft in her interpersonal relationships than the man is, which is still true today. Yeah, Eve, Eve phrases it, the serpent deceived me, not um, the serpent that you put here to help us. Right. She doesn't directly blame God. She blames the serpent. Right. So. Right, right. So this, this, as I'm saying, this reminds me of one of the, the classic legendary stories that's in my family. A classic legendary story. You know where I'm going. That's not fair. It is fair. So we were, have we been, we were still dating. We were engaged or whatever. We were married. Okay, maybe we were married. So I can't remember exactly when. The dates are fuzzy as legends often are. We were in Galveston. And because I was doing the thing that guys do when you love a woman, you go wherever she goes, basically. And so she went to Mikasa in Galveston on the Strand. We're walking through all this crystal stuff that we'll never buy, we'll never own, but we're going to look at it anyway, because whatever. So we're walking in, and Tammy goes one way to the, the, the more 
embroidered kind of Mikasa stuff. And I go this way looking for tools. I don't know, something. Get me out of here. This is a girl store. So I'm on this side of the store. Tammy's on this side of the store. It's a small store, but we're on completely different aisles, completely different sections of the, of the <coughs> store. And there may be three other people in there. So it's not a whole lot of people in there. And all of a sudden I hear a crash. And the next word I hear is, Kevin! <laughs> on the other side of the store. And I'm like, what just happened? It's a classic story. It was my fault somehow, because I took her into the store that you brought me in. There are three things. It's a tale as old as time. It is. It is, at least for the past 25 years. Okay, so there are three things for which God is worshipped in Revelation. He's, re he's worshipped for creation, He's worshipped for redemption, He's worshipped for judgment. We do the two things now, the first two now, we rarely say, thank you God for judgment. We never worship, uh, I haven't really seen a hymn written on judgment, I haven't never really seen, uh, I mean, I know Hillsong probably wouldn't do one. So there's never, there's never, but in, re in Revelation, the, the, the heavenly host including the saints, are worshiping God for His righteous judgments. Um, all right, look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, oh man, this is, something's going on here. The fall has taken over my vision. The Lord said to the serpent, first of all, does God enter into a dialogue with the serpent? No. Does he say, what have you done? No. He immediately says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And, you sh and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. He immediately pronounces a curse on the serpent. Apparently serpents can't point at this point. So he immediately pronounces the curse. What's the first part of the curse? What does he say? Put you below all the livestock. Okay, cursed are you above all livestock. Right. In other words, put you below. It's a part of that. And what does he say is the symbol of that? What's going to happen to the... To the on, your on your belly. Now, some argue that maybe he wasn't on his belly before, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe he was an upright creature. Gecko, gecko. Maybe. And sell you insurance, which tells you something. <laughs> so... Oh my God. So, he may have been an upright snake. We don't know. But is it the snake we're really talking to? Is it the creature, a serpent, that we're really talking to here? What's going on here? Who's the deceiver here? Satan. This is the devil, right? I mean, that's what's going on. So, why, by saying you'll crawl on your belly, what's he talking about? Something's going to change here. Something is altered here. A very visual thumb on, on, yes, a very visual thumb on the neck of this deceiver is going to be seen by all, displayed to all on your belly, right? Um, what's the second thing? You're going to eat dust. What does that mean? That's a real symbol of humiliation and defeat, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You're going to eat dirt? 
I mean, that's always what it meant to me in middle school. You're going to eat dirt? That's a humiliation thing. How could he say that you're humiliated and you're defeated after he just accomplished this with the image of God on earth? Because he knows what's to come. Ah. Because creation was just a foreshadowing of Christ and church and what the perfect relationship will be and that Christ will one day come and defeat him. So he puts on physical pronouncements, a change in the physical dis display of the serpent, the deceiver here, as a foreshadowing of what's to come. Um, God's judgment on the serpent is that he will bear the reminder of the coming defeat. God is the first prophet, right? And he's about to pronounce the first vision in verse 15. And this is without a human intermediary, directly from his lips, to the ears of Adam and Eve and the serpent. Straight from him. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. What have they had before? Apparently they got kind of chatty with each other. Right? But what does he say here? I put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring... Is offspring plural or singular? Singular. Okay. I've got a footnote that says seed. Okay, seed. Christ, like Galatians 3. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, there are three clauses in this verse. First, the enmity between you and the woman. Who put the enmity there? God. God did. Now, is the enmity he's talking about, is he talking about why, generally, women hate snakes? Yeah. <laughs> There's another urban legend from our family on this issue, but we'll we'll move on. Earthworm because it eats us. <laughs> Moving on. One. What? What is it? Okay. <laughs> Earthworm. <laughs> what is that movie where the guy, the big worms, are all through the? Tremors. Tremors. Okay. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. Okay. So, <laughs> what is enmity? What does that mean? What does hatred. enmity mean? Hatred. hatred. Separation. There's separation. There's, there's an irreconcilable relationship there, right? You're not... There, there's such hatred. There's such uh, uh, animosity. It, it also has with it the, the idea of, of murderous thought between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see that play out in chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. Right? I mean, it's like immediate. Um, Cain, uh, who uh, James calls the unrighteous one, or the, the, the man of the sea, the son of the devil kind of idea. And then you have Abel, who's called that, you know, was, was called righteous or seen as righteous in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. Clearly, those two. And immediately, there's murderous intent, enmity between. Cain to Abel. Deception. Hey, come on out here. Let's talk. By the way, don't look at this club. Or however you use it. I don't know. There's a murderous intent there. Clearly. And God is talking about that. He's, he's putting that there. One party is an enemy to the other. And God is basically announcing a new order. There will always be conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. This two-seed idea pervades. Scripture has pervaded human history. 
It's there. It includes this extreme hatred, animosity, and the desire for murder. Um, part of this has already taken place in the fall. The deception of Eve, the plunging of humanity into sin, death, and the grave, Jesus talks about the deceiver in this, in this narrative. And he says, he doesn't say he was a liar from the beginning. He doesn't just say he was a deceiver from the beginning. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. This was seen as an act of murder by the devil against humanity. Why was that? They were living, they had perpetual life here. I don't say quite eternal life the way we understand it coming, but they had perpetual life here. And he plunged them into death. Now it was delayed physical death, but it's clearly immediately spiritual death. They're running from the God that, who created them, who they had perfect fellowship with. He was a murderer from the beginning. He spiritually murdered them, and eventually they will die. He's physically, he certainly humiliated the image of God on earth. Now, and we'll see um, what happens uh, a little bit, God's pronouncements of judgment on Adam and Eve. Between your offspring and her offspring, do we have here, I have in my notes, it's kind of a pun, do we have to hear the genesis of the general hatred of revulsion most people feel towards things? No. <laughs> Something else going on here. Something else is going on. This is not a reference to physical lineage. This is not... You know, we, we need to watch out for baby copperheads all the time. You know, this is not, that's not what this is talking about. Satan is a fallen angel and angels don't have children. God is referring to spiritual descendants. One can be a child of Satan by will, heart, and intent. And, and Jesus often referred to the Pharisees as, well, what, sons of the devil, right? How to, how to brood of vipers? Yeah, how do you how to influence friends and you know or make friends they and influence also people? Look to the snake in the desert when they had been bitten to be healed. Okay. And and it's a the fiery serpent you're talking about. You know they ultimately worship that snake. No, the one that they the bronze, bronze, the bronze serpent. serpent. Yeah. The only ones that we use for the medical thing now. Yeah, and it, it ended up becoming a, a uh, an yeah. idol for them. Yeah. Yes, as he as he told them to, right? Exactly. All right. So you have this 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 reference by Jesus to sons of the devil, brood of vipers, the believer or the seed of the woman says, "Our Father who is in heaven." Right. So the idea of the two seeds has immediate consequences in Cain and Abel. It has consequences throughout history. It's been going on since the beginning. All right. What's the third pronouncement here? So the zenith of this whole thing culminates in a singular he. And what happens? When you, when you talk about bruising something's head. That's the head. That's the destruction. I mean, how do you kill the snake? You cut off the head, right? Crush your head. So it's kind of like and in our house, that's usually done with a hoe. We and just kind of. He will strike his heel. And right. Think of those two injuries. They're not equal. So, yeah, Satan destroy, destroys the body of Christ. And in doing so, Christ destroys Satan forever. You know what's interesting here? In the, in the final clause here, the serpent is not mentioned first. It's the he. Mm -hmm. 
showing that primacy of the he that's coming singular seed. in the singular seed. It almost to me has the idea of like how kings used to put their their foot on the mm. head of their enemy right. when they had defeated them. And who has who has the power, the one with the foot on the head or the one that can maybe bite the heel. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. All right. So we have this promise. And then he goes on to verse 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What Does God curse the woman? He cursed the snake. He said, cursed are you, now you'll bear in pain. Is that a curse? That's more of consequences. Okay. Um... Kevin, that where it says in pain there, is that could that be more in sorrow? I think it's both. And I, think I think it's a good point. It, it's both. It, 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 there's, a, there's a physical increase multiplying your pain. Pain upon pain is kind of the idea. But there's also every child that's born of woman is now born in rebellion against God. And that wounds a mother's heart, right? Wounds a father's heart too, frankly, but it, it wounds a mother's heart. Uh, there's this emotional thrust to that pain. Also, there wasn't death. Think about in the history of the world, the, the, the high, high rate of, of child mortality. mortality. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... So there's physical consequences, physical consequences to this of losing children now. Um, but there's also the, the pain of dealing with a two-year-old. That's painful. And, and a 13-year-old, and a 16-year-old, and a, anyway. Uh, Tim Keller once said, Your parent, a parent is only as happy as their saddest child. So there's this incredible... pessimistic way to look at it. Wait till you have them, you'll see the truth. I like the way that the, the second clause here is rendered by the ESV. Uh, other translations have it, um, you will long for your husband, but he will rule over you. I was, I was going to ask about that. What exactly, yeah, your desire so, for or against yeah. your husband, what is it's that? It's more like the desire to take over your husband's role. Right, so, so this longing, it's desirous for your husband. Some people think of that's like a you know like a high school crush on a on a on the football star kind of thing, but that's not what's going on here. What's going on is the same thing God says to Cain: sin is crouching at the door; it longs to devour you, but you must rule over it. It desires to destroy you; its desires for you, but you must rule over it. It's a usurping of the will. That's what's involved. So the ESV has it translated. Um, the, the, your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Has the order, have the roles changed? No, but the heart has. But the heart has. What are Christian women called to do again and again by Paul and others to display Christ in their relationships to their husbands? What are they called to do? It's a big, just, I mean, just a filthy word. Yeah. Submit. Right? What a filthy word, submit. How dare they? The roles are the same. But the effort to usurp the role, again, like 
the fall, what happened at the fall, there's two things going on. One is, how dare he tell me what to do or how dare he be over me in any capacity. And that's the way it was from the beginning. And the response of the man is, oh, yes, dear. Right? Well, their, their trust has been broken. Right. Because he didn't protect her. Right. He didn't, you know, he didn't do the things that he should have done in that instance with the serpent. And so there's a, there's a distrust. Well, maybe I can do it better than him. Right. You know? Right. But, yeah. But that's no excuse to do no, that. No, I'm yeah. not saying that. But I, that, that mm -hmm. distrust has been entered into their relationship. Because of the failures of both, there's now this continual, and this has happened in every marriage since Adam and Eve, there's this continual contention of, do I trust him? Well, I think it's very valid. <laughs> <laughs> and, we begin therapy tomorrow. Um, uh, do I trust him? Do, and is he trustworthy? I mean, is he actively seeking for her good? Right? I mean, there's the rule over, has within it, how do you lead? You lead to, to promote the good of your wife and kids, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the job, uh, spiritually and, and, and provide, by providing. And so, I think what makes it even more multiplied is like the fact that the man does stand idly by and allow her to do it. Mm. Like, he didn't say anything, because if he had said something, who knows what the outcome would have right. been. But, I mean, you can even see that today in relationships and in marriages, and like, she's like, okay, well, I'll just do it. Yeah. Like, I can do it. Like that, I, that idea, like I can do it better. Just, just let me handle it. And yeah. It's well, so well, you see that in the church, don't you? Half of the time, you see it in the church. Yeah. <coughs> he needs to take a, a back seat. He does not need to step up. He needs to to do whatever she wants to do. He, you know, that's or that's what the church tells the man to do. Or well today. Well, some of them do. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the thrust today. But, but it's the it's the it's the what's the word? Giving over of a man's role to lead. And again, we talk about leading and ruling. We're not talking about where's my sandwich. We're talking about um, setting the vision. Setting. The, I mean, because Proverbs thirty-one doesn't. It's not an idle wife. He's just going to do everything for me. She's working hard too, mm -hmm. right? But they're working together and lockstep, facing the world together, moving forward. But he's setting the agenda, and they're and they're going forward. That's that's the issue here. Who gets to who gets to who gets to show and display trust in in the roles? God didn't change the roles of husband and wife. He just exposed the reality of sin that had been embraced by Adam and Eve in the fall. Let's let's quickly look at um, the man. Does God curse Adam? Look at verse seventeen. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taking, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. God does curse the ground. Before that, that work was there before. Sin. Right. But it was. But, but it was not painful. Right. 
Notice that they both experienced pain in their roles. A curse. Right. God, there was always, a, you know, subduing increases work. But it was not a work in pain. The ground was lush. The ground was fertile. The ground was, was yielding what Adam asked of it to yield through whatever he was doing. Here, what's, what's the problem? It resists him. It resists his efforts. It is now subjected to futility because of the sin of man. It becomes a waste of time in some instances. God does curse the ground. Adam obeyed the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God, so the mandate given by God to subdue and increase will become incredibly difficult. Like childbirth, getting food will now be done in pain. Both tasks will be difficult. And the earth is subjected to futility and frustration. It's a seemingly endless cycle of birth, growth, death and decay just like mankind cycle we're born we grow we die we, we rot and it keeps going it just keeps going and it seems like it'll never end this idea of thorns and thistles instead of the lush of the garden with food freely given they have complications of a resistant ground from which to cultivate food and these terms, thorns and thistles, reflect judgment later on in Scripture. We see this in Hosea a lot. He talks about the judgment of Israel. Finally, man had dominion over creation, but now the ground claims victory. Man will return to the dust from which he was created. It literally says, dust you are. Let's quickly wrap it up here. So the declaration of the reality of futility and pain, of struggle, hatred, and enmity, these are the judgments of God because of the fall. Even more, man will experience these things apart from the wisdom and nature of God. Isn't that the issue? I mean, if you're having going through tough circumstances, and I'm, assure, I'm pretty sure that making the world Eden was a difficult situation, but now they're doing it apart from the wisdom and influence of God, and they're doing it with a sin nature. There's no thought, idea, or motive that is not corrupted by sin. The, the created roles are the same in the most basic human relationship, but it too is infected with a struggle and lust for power. There's, a, there's, a, there's not lockstep anymore. In the midst of the horror show is a single thread of hope. <coughs> We're dealing with sin, right? That's the, whole, that's the whole arc here. How do we get trapped in it? What, do we, what, do we, what is our response to it? What is God pointing us to? First, he says, where are you? Right? Don't run. Come here. And then he provides a he. A seed of the woman. Who's already crushed the head of the snake. Your sin has already been nailed to the cross. You bear it no more. Praise the Lord for your soul. The response to our sin whether we are outside of Christ or in Christ, is to run to the He, the promised Redeemer, in 3.15. In Luke 3, Jesus is in the direct lineage of the woman. And it's interesting that in, directly after the genealogy in Luke 3, Luke tells of Jesus immediately being led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's the same setup, but in much different circumstances that we see in the garden. <clears throat> The battle rages and ultimately culminates at the cross where Jesus is bruised on the heel. Although, from our perspective, that's a pretty big bruise. I can't resurrect myself. 
He did. Sin, death, hell, and the grave are mortally crushed. And from Genesis to Revelation, the remainder of Scripture is the unfolding of that initial prophecy by God Himself. Redemption is promised and redemption is fulfilled. Sin breeds death, but Christ is life. When we sin, we don't try to forsake it so that we can come to Christ. We run to Christ to forsake our sin. The hope of the sinner is Jesus. The hope of the sinning Christian is Jesus. All I have needed, His hand has provided. And in His faithfulness to us, we strive, and we have to strive to be faithful to Him. It's late. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll move on. God, we do thank you that you have provided Christ for us. God, we repent and are sorry for the many instances every day that we grab the fruit that you've commanded us not to. But God, in the midst of our guilt and shame of our own sin, we thank you that you call to us. Give us hearts that don't hide from you. Help us to run to Jesus, who's born the guilt, the shame, and the penalty of our sin through His death on the cross and now lives for us victoriously over death, hell, and the grave through His resurrection. We long for the day He returns to where the endless cycle of frustration and vanity end and we live purely and completely as unto You. Keep that always before our eyes, Father, and let us strive toward, toward it even now as we pursue Christ above all else. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. Sorry I ran a little long. Yeah,